May I have your attention? I'm uh, Mark Juergensmeyer from the University of California, Santa Barbara, and I'd like to welcome all of you for this very special event, although a, a sad one, but I hope also a happy one as we remember the life and career of Robert Bella. Uh, as you know, he's probably the preeminent sociologist of religion of his day, uh, but he was also, for many of us, a dear friend. So today we want to tell stories, but also remember what we think is significant about his contributions to the study of religion. Uh, and I'm going to take something of a back seat because I've had a chance to do both in my, uh, my memorial in the, this issue of the Journal of Academy of Religion. I've talked a little bit about some of the stories of Bob, my remembrance of him as a guy who loved conflict, who loved a good intellectual battle. Uh, and in my essay in religious... Uh, uh, in uh, religious uh, dispatches, uh, I tried to recall what I thought was significant about Bob's work to the study of religion, how he tried to enlarge the study of religion, not only sociologically, but also in comparatively, uh, in terms of uh, historical dimension, but his encounter with science, to take seriously not just the social science sciences, but the physical and biological sciences. So I've said my bit. Uh, I'm eager to hear the remembrances of the eight or nine of us uh, who are on the panel. They have been instructed that they have, alas, since we have only a, less than an hour and a half together, uh, some eight minutes each, uh, I know they could talk on and on, uh, and we would love to hear them uh, at length, but uh, today just a sampling. Uh, beginning with Harvey Cox of Harvard University. Harvard, please, uh, Harvey, please take the, the stage. Uh, thank you, Mark. <laughs> Can it really be 53 years ago that I first met Bob Bella? Well, yes, it can be, and in fact, it is. It was 53 years ago. When I was a doctoral student at, at, at Harvard, and some of us were informed that we had to take an exam in something called a religion other than Judaism or Christianity. And I heard vaguely that there were such other religions. I was a fairly provincial kid. But I was rather terrified of leaping wholeheartedly into any one of them. And then Bob Bella came to our rescue. He was a young associate professor at the time, and he suggested that we have a seminar and then the exam that we were expected to do on what he called primitive religion. By that, it turned out that Bob really meant what Durkheim had called les formes élémentaires de la vie religieuse. Uh, but we plunged in, uh, the, and I'll get back to that in just a minute. The very last time I saw Bob was when he came to give the Tillich Memorial Lecture in May of this year uh, at Harvard on Paul Tillich and the Challenge of Modernity. And he was eloquent as usual, brilliant as usual. We had lunch together. And sadly, as I think about it, Bob was absolutely brimming over with all the new ideas and possibilities and plans and books and articles that he was going to write. He will not be able to write them now. He is gone. But I am so grateful that I had a chance to study with him and then to continue to learn from him over the years because we became friends and I never stopped learning from Bob Bella. Um,
Back to that uh, seminar. I'm specializing a little bit in the early Bob Bella, and some of these we'll talk about the middle and later Bob Bella. Uh, we plunged in. There are only five in this seminar. We plunged into his rather formidable reading list. And when I think about, about it, here's what, we, here's what we were reading. Eric Vogelin's Order and History. Lloyd Warner's A Black Civilization. Max Weber's The Protestant Era, of course. Freud's Totem and Taboo. Uh, and, uh, and then, interestingly, at the time, and still for me, we read both Sophocles' Antigone and Aeschylus' The Persians. Uh, all under the gentle but firm hand of Robert Bella, this little group in this little seminar room. And as I uh, read, uh, when, I, when I think back 50 years ago to that seminar room, I now realize that Bob Bella was having his own axial moment. That's the point at which he assembled the, the uh, intellectual basis for all the work that he did uh, the rest of his life, which you can see demonstrated if you read uh, uh, Religion and Human, Human Evolution. There it is. However, that he was also helping us equip ourselves with the kind of intellectual apparatus that would lead us to a life of the study of religion. He was giving us our axial moment, although we didn't know it at the time. Uh, I now realize that, and uh, you know, for Bob, and I guess for all of us, none of us have outlived our axial moment. And he would say that our civilization has not outlived our axial moment as well. Well, he left Harvard just as I was graduating, much to my regret. Uh, but one of the things that I learned from me most valuable from Bob Bella, more from his life, actually from his writing or teaching, was uh, the way he could combine absolutely unblinking critical scholarship with genuine religious faith. We talked about that a lot, and I, I remembered last week a, uh, an anecdote that I told Bob that he delighted in, so I take the liberty of telling it to you. When I was a high school student, I had a very pretty and very smart girlfriend who, alas, was an Episcopalian. I was not. <laughs> but she always invited me to go to midnight Christmas service with her. And so I, I went, mainly to be with her. Uh, I later quite understood what Henry IV meant when he said Paris is worth a mass. <laughs> I thought um, <laughs> Patsy was worth a Eucharist. <laughs> we left for separate colleges, and Patsy became very enamored of cultural anthropology. But when she got back, for our Christmas break, she invited me to go to church with her. Of course, I accepted. We went. And uh, when it came time to go forward for communion, uh, Patsy went forward and signaled to me. I came forward. And we knelt together there. And as the wafer and the wine was being passed along, she leaned over to me and said, you know, Harvey, from the point of view of cultural anthropology, this all looks ridiculous. But then she took communion in two kinds, wafer and wine, and went back to her prayers. When I told Bob that, he said, that's a terrific girl. <laughs> she has managed to put together at the age of 18 what most of us take a whole lifetime uh, putting together, uh, how to be both critical of a religious ritual, stand apart from it, 
but participate in it, and participate in it fully, enthusiastically, and wholeheartedly. I appreciate that uh, from Bob. And I remind you that in addition to all of his enormously erudite writings, some of the most cogent and moving ones are found in the sermons that he gave toward the end of his life that are included in the Bella Reader, especially the one he gave on uh, All Saints Day. Also, I have to say that as a, as a moderate leftist, I loved Bob Bella's politics. And I loved the way he linked his politics to piety. Indeed, for him, the two were utterly inseparable. Uh, just read Religion and Human Evolution and see what he does with those Greek, with those Greek uh, tragedians, how he shows how Aeschylus and Sophocles dealt with the crisis of Athenian civilization when they had overstretched and tried to combine being a democracy with being an empire and were finding that it wasn't going to work and how their tragedies uh, also uncovered that contradiction within the human soul itself. Uh, there it is. Bob did not parade the obvious in his, this is the summary he gives, by the way, in Religion and Revolution of the Greek tragedians. Uh, he didn't parade the obvious that this is exactly where we are in America today. Uh, trying to struggle with whether it's possible, it probably isn't, to be a democracy at home and an empire abroad. Well, in the last years of his life, Bob tended to sound a little discouraged, even in the middle years. A book like The Broken Covenant uh, exhibits that, but he was always underneath a, a, a hopeful person. And those of us who knew him personally know that he experienced tragedies and setbacks and disappointments in his life, but he never lost that uh, sense of hopefulness, indeed, almost a buoyancy. He was still buoyant just a few months ago when he was talking about the future that, alas, he won't seem to have. He closed that lecture, as I will close these remarks, by, this is the lecture he gave on Tillichan modernity, by uh, recalling a time when he'd been asked as a doctoral student to respond to a uh, lecture that Tillich was giving at Harvard, where Tillich seemed to dwell on the dark forces of modernity, the meaninglessness of modern life, one of Tillich's favorite thematics, and Bella asked him after the lecture, isn't there something positive about the modern world uh, that you can talk about? Is it all meaninglessness and, and darkness? And Tillich, Bella said, apologized and said, yes, I have talked too much today about the demonic structures. Instead of about, uh, I should talk more about gestalt of grace, the structure of grace. Uh, because that is what makes it possible for us to hope. Uh, well, he was right, Bella said. He was absolutely right. And he concluded his own lecture, the lecture on Tillich, just a few months ago, with these words, the last words I ever heard him say from a podium. Don't worry. It is not too late, and it certainly isn't too early. This is our Kairos moment, recurring to one of Tillich's themes. This is our Kairos moment. 
It is now that we are called to hope and called to act. Thank you, Bob, for all that you've given me and all that you've given to us. And thank you, Harvey. Uh, David Little from Harvard. I am deeply honored to be asked by Steve Tipton to offer a few words of tribute to an enormously creative and productive scholar, my esteemed teacher and friend, Bob Bella. I first encountered Bob in a course on the sociology of religion he co-taught with Talcott Parsons at Harvard in 1958. I was a lowly first-year graduate student utterly untutored in the theories of Freud, Marx, Durkheim, and Weber, and by no means interested at that time in pursuing the thought of any one of them. Bob's compelling and passionate illumination of the work of those thinkers, primarily, in my case, Max Weber, and supplemented, of course, by Talcott Parsons, was really a transforming experience. I come from a long line of Presbyterian clergy and almost became one myself, and the Weberian perspective on Calvinism, uh, exposited by Bob as well as by Parsons and later by an also beloved teacher of mine, James Luther Adams, caused the scales to fall from my eyes. It was in that course and in a follow-up seminar also led by Bella and Parsons that my lifelong dedication to the relation of Calvinism and modern society was born. I proceeded at Harvard to produce a dissertation on the famous Weber thesis on Puritanism and capitalism with Bob as a very important mentor. He wrote a very generous preface, in fact, to the published version of that thesis. Since then, I've gone on to elaborate another and even more evident connection between Calvinism and modern society that Bob also emphasized following Weber and his friend, the eminent Austrian constitutional scholar, Georg Jelinek. That was the Puritan contribution to the rise of modern constitutionalism and the legal protection of freedom of conscience, inspired especially, as Jelinek argued, by the Puritan dissenter, Roger Williams. All the same, I must add, Roger Williams' influence on American life and culture was a subject of serious disagreement between Bob and me. Bob did see Williams' commitment to freedom of conscience as the source of a healthy form of multiculturalism, deep mutual respect among all citizens for religious diversity but he also characterized Williams as a sociological catastrophe, an early example, as he put it, of what happens when the sacredness of the individual is not balanced by any sense of the whole or concern for the common good. Uh, in my view, Bob was mistaken on that point. Williams was actually all about the common good of his colony, Rhode Island, proven both by his writings and by his recurring efforts to obtain charters from England and as a public official to try tirelessly and against an obsessive and pervasive lust for land to persuade his fellow citizens 
to pull together around those charters. Far from severing the connection between freedom of conscience and the common good, Williams believed that the two were interdefinable. Where the other colonies went wrong was to enforce a civil religion as the basis for the common good. The foundation of civil authority is not religion or Christianity, Williams said, but what is natural, humane, and civil. Williams, it turns out, was an early proponent of public reason grounded in the notion of equal natural rights. This was, I believe, the real point of difference between Bob and me. Though he never doubted the importance of equal rights, he persistently held that a notion of public reason based on secular ideas of equal rights could only undermine the common good. I have continued to think otherwise, but just so long as rights and common good are seen as Williams saw them. While I'm at it, the subject of comparative religious ethics was another area of disagreement between us, though it turned out to be less important. I well remember a session at Harvard Divinity School in the 80s where Bob and Wilfred Cantwell Smith joined forces alternatingly wagging their fingers at me and calling me harshly to account for a book Barney Twiss and I had recently published on the subject. The controversy, as I recall, was over an analytical distinction Barney and I drew between morality and religion, uh, and over, I think, too, what was considered a rather abstract and bloodless examination of arguments contained in certain Christian, Buddhist, and Navajo scriptures and narratives. Because of some of Bob's and others' criticisms, uh, as well as reconsiderations of my own, I eventually lost confidence in the approach Barney and I had developed in the book and turned to recommending a comparison of religious ethics in regards to topics of practical importance like war and peace and human rights and freedom of religion. Alas, I shall never know whether or not this new tack would have met with Bob's approval. But apart from these differences, there were areas where Bob was a great inspiration to me. Most important was his unyielding and compelling defense in the tradition of Weber and others of the role of religion in human life. To read through the essays compiled by Steve Tipton and Bob in the Bella Reader is to encounter a staggering array of arresting argument and evidence aimed at laying to rest any and all efforts to reduce away or dispense with the significance of religious thought in social life. In fact, there is reason to think that the position he long stood for is gaining ground among prominent philosophers. Thomas Nagel, Ronald Dworkin, and Jürgen Habermas have all of late published books supporting in one way or another the centrality of what Nagel calls religious temperament in the human enterprise. Some of the arguments put forward in these books sound very much like Bob's arguments developed over the course of his imposing life. Uh, that is particularly true of the chapter on religion and evolution in his recent magnum opus on that subject. Another area of inspiration has been his recurring and probing discussion of the adverse influence of Protestantism on American culture. The links Bob repeatedly drew, usually in his characteristic acerbic style, 
between Protestantism uh, and individualism, devotion to the free market, antipathy to the central government, uh, as well as federally initiated health and welfare programs, and a strident form of American nationalism has particular power at the present time. Those connections are strongly reinforced by Putnam and Campbell in American Grace and by scholars of the new history of early Cold War America with a central focus on the origins of the close ties between evangelicalism and right-wing politics in this country. I hope this personal record reveals how important a figure Bob Bella was for me, both as Gespreik's partner and inspiration. I am profoundly indebted to him as teacher, scholar, critic, and friend. He had a massive influence on the study of religion and society, and like all of us, I will miss him acutely. Thank you, David. Uh, Ann Swidler from Berkeley. Yeah, I come partly as one representative here, Steve Tipton and Dick Madsen here as well, of the Habits of the Heart crew. My husband and I used to refer to it as the Hobbits of the Hearth, <laughs> and I guess you could think of us as the four Hobbits and Bob perhaps as the Hearth. Um, and I bring greetings and regrets from Bill Sullivan, who couldn't be here but is very much with us uh, in spirit. So I've known Bob since, I think, about 1968 when I was a graduate student at Berkeley and he recently arrived a uh, faculty member. But the, and he was, yes, he was on my dissertation committee, although I am happy to report that he signed my dissertation without having, having so much as opened it, let alone read it. He wasn't the chair, but still. And uh, then my deep association with him, of course, came with the work for Habits of the Heart and the Good Society and then continuing in all the years afterwards. But what I want to do is talk about uh, both a more intimate and a, I hope, uh, more psychological uh, portrait of him. And that's because in the days, so he died on July 30th and we were scheduled to reunite our Habits of the Heart group the next week. So he literally died a week before we were having our regular annual get-together. So we got together anyway. We were all coming to town. We didn't expect him to die. It was a complete surprise. And um, one of the things we did during the two days we met was to make a list of all his annoying habits. <laughs> and we did that because we saw this wave of hagiography sweeping over us, that he would be uh, raised to some transcendent level in which he would be utterly unrecognizable. And so we laughed and joked, and I can tell you a few of the things. None of them were totally scandalous, but he was a drama queen, and I think that's, he saw everything in enormously dramatic terms and everything about himself, and things were crises and so forth. Um, he was thin-skinned, we would sometimes be astounded when we met that he would report some negative review of Habits of the Heart, and we thought, yeah, and we're crying all the way to the bank. What are you talking about, Bob? And he would be genuinely wounded, or sometimes even when a former student published something 
totally at odds with things Bob was deeply committed to, he would be hurt. And we always found this, you know, he was so famous. He was so admired. He was such a sort of transcendent figure in several fields. How could he be so hypersensitive? He, and this wasn't on our list, but when we shared this list with one of his daughters, she said, and his temper. And then she said, and I want him back, temper and all. So uh, I want to talk about what I think are the sources of some of those, let's call them idiosyncrasies, that are also what made him deeply human. But I think they're also part of what made him a great man. So my theme a little bit is what is the relationship between our pettiness and our greatness? And I think those things are inevitably part of what makes greatness great. And I guess when I thought about it, and I have thought about Bob over many, many years, both when he was alive and certainly a great, great deal since his death, and I can still hardly accept that death now. He's so vivid. He, he's such a, a vibrant, just radiating intellectual energy and emotional energy it's very, very hard to accept that he's not right around the corner and I won't see him tomorrow. But um, one of the thoughts I've had is that in some ways he did not have the average level of psychological boundaries that most Americans take for granted. That is, we are very good at being extremely autonomous selves. We have a great sense of our physical boundaries, our psychological boundaries, and our intellectual boundaries. And I think Bob was more open to the world and therefore more vulnerable to the world. He was, to use the very common expression, thin-skinned. And thin-skinned is a negative, right? People are hypersensitive. They get their feelings hurt for no reason and so forth. But I think in his case, being thin-skinned also meant that he had kind of a permeable layer in his relationship to the world. And that meant that things that you and I can wall off from our consciousness, looming ecological disaster, political catastrophe, the personal pain of people we deal with, I think he felt those things. He really felt them all the time. He didn't have those defenses that walled him off from those things. It also meant that he had an extremely rich, I'll say raunchy, sense of humor and a sensuous appreciation of the things of this world. I always think, yes, Jeremiah married to Elizabeth Taylor or something like that is about where you'd find Bobby married to an extremely glamorous, sexy, uh, yeah, I, no other way to put it, right? Totally gorgeous wife. Yes, definitively of that mold. Okay, and very proud of it, by the way. Oh, one of the other things that showed up on both our list and the daughter's list of uh, peculiarities was I said to the daughter, you know, well, we also thought he was sometimes a little bit of a snob. And she said, a little bit, a little bit. He was a total snob, <laughs> a snob about grammar, a snob about classical music, a snob about Plato and Aristotle and you know, knowing Greek and all the things we couldn't do. But how does that relate to the greatness? And I think it really does relate 
And I think the way to think about this is that Bob thought of himself as profoundly open to and in conversation with all of humankind, and indeed, as becomes evident in religious religion and human evolution, all of pre-human kind, all of living matter. And there's both an enormous egotism in that, the permeable self is the world, it encompasses the world, it really is gigantic, it's as big as a self can get, everything is in that self, and it is open to and truly interested in and truly engaged with all the thought of all the human beings who ever were. And so to write a book as ambitious as religion in human evolution and to publish it at 84, approximately, I think he was about 84, and to really deal deeply with Hinduism and the early forms of ancient Judaism and ancient Chinese religion the, and ancient Judaism. These are efforts that no ordinary mortal would make at any age. And Bob could make them because for him, thinking was thinking in interaction. It was being penetrated by and then carrying forward the ideas of a whole community. He was deeply engaged with American society and American culture during the Habits of the Heart era. And during the religion and human evolution period, he was deeply engaged with the heritage of all of humanity. And he really felt that he was at the center of a conversation about the future of humankind, and that is the conversation he invited all of us to participate in. Steve Tipton from Emory University. Thank you, Mark. Let me thank all of you for joining us here today. There's a line from Aeschylus that Bob loved. Time in its aging course teaches all things. No one learned more from it than Robert Bella, or more truly. Where do we come from and go to? What are we here for? No one wrestled and played more deeply with these questions than Bob or more broadly embraced the mystery of what we must do to be saved. He brought its axial arc down to the ground of how to live, not only there and then, once upon a time, but here and now. Do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with thy God in biblical Jerusalem and down these uneven streets in this promised land. Let the good city move in tune with the lawful harmony of the soul and the cosmos in ancient Athens and in these unsustainable days of global warming. 
from Micah and Plato to Tillich and Talcott, Bob heeded his teachers and made friends with them through history. And so he did with us. The past is never dead, he taught us. It breathes in and through us, confounding us as we repeat history and freeing us as we make it by seeking to attain the impossible. If you love your country, you should hate the evil that it does and stand against it and make it different, make it better. Bob did, and he paid for it. Seekers, however foolish and worldly eyes, he took in. Knaves, however clever, he took on, especially those with the worldly power to grind down the least of these. Such sinners in the hands of an angry Bob got what was coming to them from a Scots Presbyterian, <laughs> committed to common decency by uncommon conscience. Born in the land of the free, Bob sought freedom from its blinders in a wider world that took him from Apaches to Zinacantecos and all along the way from Edo to Mecca. Then he came home to uncover where we began, in the providence of our progress, the covenant of our constitution, the sacred souls of our sovereign selves. Deep is the well of the past, and from it Bob drew living water, bright and clear and encompassing, the flow of Bob's work, and yes, the sound of his voice will go on through ever-widening waves of resonance in our thoughts and our arguments. In the communion of all souls and all citizens, the goodness of Bob's spirit will live on through the work of our hands and the habits of our hearts. His boundless, boundless curiosity and courage his practical wisdom, and his tender, loving care will be with us always, world without end. Thank you, Steve. Uh, Dick Madsen from the University of California, San Diego. Well, it's with a great bittersweet uh, joy, I, and, but with a great honor that... Uh, I have to come here. Uh, I first uh, met Bob, at least close up, uh, about 35 years ago when I uh, <clears throat> came up to Berkeley to join the group that later on wrote uh, Habits of the Heart. And I remember uh, sitting, walking in the, in the hallways of uh, Barrows Hall at UC Berkeley outside his office, and I was smoking a cigarette. I've since given those up. And Anne came out to see me, and she said, you know, two things. First of all, he hates cigarettes. Don't go in the room smoking. Uh, second, uh, he thinks he's the greatest sociologist in the world. And, uh, and you know, take account of that. <clears throat> so uh, when I door opened and I entered the room, uh, I felt more than a little uh, intimidated. I figured that Bob 
would notice my first of all my bad habits and also note my poor education and uh, it wouldn't be good. But my apprehensive expectation uh, was very, very quickly dispelled. And I found Bob extremely down to earth, welcoming, engaging, and he was a major part of my life ever since. Now, Bob uh, was not humble. Uh, he did think he was the greatest sociologist uh, in the 20th century, I think. Uh, but he, he was not arrogant either. Uh, he perhaps was a snob, but by no means was he pompous. Uh, he was very, very down to earth and, and very, very open. And this was manifested in the way he listened to us. Uh, I know very few professors, especially professors of his stature, that was such a good listener. Most of the people I know like that love to talk at you, and, and, and that's the end of it. But he engaged, he listened, he took very, very seriously what we had to say. We, he took each of us extremely seriously uh, in a way that was, 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 was funny, down-to-earth, uh, and deeply concerned about all aspects of our lives. So from this, I think I, I take uh, the origin of one of the first big themes uh, that I see in Bob's work overall. And this is the desire for a kind of a holistic vision. When we worked together, he took pains, I believe, not to dominate us or tell us what to do, but to somehow be a catalyst that formed a group that was greater than the sum of its parts. And a major part of his intellectual endeavor is to sh talk about emergent structures, communities, wholes that are greater than the sum of their parts, uh, and to understand social phenomena most especially religion, as part of a wider whole, part of a holistic vision. And he was brilliant at that. And it's something that I myself have tried to, to do, to try to learn. Uh, but it's something that perhaps most sociologists, most social scientists, most scholars these days uh, are afraid to do because once you try to see a part in light of a larger whole, you can fear that you're going to be caught up in an ever-widening sort of hermeneutic circle, and you'll never get out and never be able to publish the kinds of scholarship that gets people tenure and so forth these days. Uh, but Bob was just indefatigable and, and, and searching through all kinds of literature and all kinds of data and all kinds of information, all kinds of experiences to try to get to build a bigger and bigger context for, for everything that he studied. And, and this was part of his vision, his insistence, that we are all part of a larger whole, which in, in fact is greater than the sum of its parts. The second theme uh, in Bob's work uh, repeated again and again, he is encapsulated in, the, in his phrase, nothing is ever lost. And in religious evolution, of course, this comes up again and again, the notion that even when we think we've transcended ritual, myth, 
narrative and so forth um, in, through, through exercise of reason, we never really do. Uh, what we think to be our, our, our clear, rational, systematic ways of thinking and acting always have embedded within them uh, a past, often a very, very deep past, uh, which can never be truly transcended, although it can be transformed. And to understand religion especially, one has to understand this in all of its different levels. And this was manifested also in the way in which uh, we worked together. Uh, it was a collaboration, at once intellectual, uh, but also always uh, deeply emotional, expressed through many kinds of small rituals and remembrances and, and little habits that we, 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 we had and we carried out and we remembered and joked with each other about and so forth. And an insistence, as, as Anne has, has said, on, on seeing, on, on being he himself, but also wanting all of us to be whole persons, not just some sort of disembodied intellectual thinkers, but people for whom the ideas penetrated our, our hearts and our, our, our moral sensibilities and indeed our faith. And so, once again, the way he treated us, I think, was reflected in his work, this idea that nothing is ever lost, nothing can be truly transcended. Uh, and this, too, is hard for, uh, I think, modern scholars, uh, many scholars, to accept. Uh, we try to work on a strictly intellectual level and draw these kinds of boundaries. And he insisted that that was never, ever uh, truly uh, possible and that one had to recognize the depth and the complexity of human experience uh, if one was going to do really good scholarship that would last. At the end of his uh, magnum opus, Religion, Human Evolution, he holds out the very pessimistic uh, possibility of the future extinction of the human species. Uh, I myself can't see that far into the future but I can see more closely the possibilities of the extinction of social science, at least. Uh, and, uh, and if that should happen, though, uh, there would be some works uh, that maybe are, have not been fully appreciated during their lifetime, uh, but are deep enough and robust enough uh, and multi-layered enough and connected to a larger, large enough communities that they'll, that they'll last no matter what kind of changes in academic fashions and so forth they take, take, take place. I think Bob's work will be like that. Uh, it'll live for a long, long time and influence many, many generations to come, interpreted and reinterpreted many, many different ways, and will outlast those simplistic, superficial works that uh, you find in most scholarship of religion today. Arlen Stelmach from the Dominican University of California. Well, I believe Bob particularly would want to be remembered within a community of religious teachers and scholars. I also believe we would greatly benefit as a body if we continue to remember him. As a community of memory, AAR can play a role that's crucial in helping to inform our culture's religious future.
communities of memory must carry the best of our tradition. Bob Bella is one of the best of our tradition, and he must continue to engage us. The Bella I want to also remember is with you today is what he has represented for us in his religious faith. It is this Bella that informed and inspired me and many of his other students at the Graduate Theological Union over a 40-year period. I want to begin with informal remarks he gave at a luncheon at UC Berkeley when he received the Faculty Forum Award from the C.S. Lewis Foundation in 2003. In his remarks, he shares much of his personal faith journey. He says, It was not until graduate school that I rediscovered Christianity at a time of some personal difficulty and growing disillusionment with Marxism, I came across a review in the New York Times by C. Wright Mills, of all people. He mentioned a book that I took notice of. It was Paul Tillich's The Courage to Be, of which Mills spoke highly as offering an existential interpretation of our cultural situation. At the time, I never heard of Paul Tillich. But I, I bought the book, and it changed my life. When he wrote, Faith is not belief in the unbelievable, the scales fell from my eyes because I realized that is just what I had come to think faith was. So it was Tillich who made it possible for me to be a Christian again, though I was still a private Christian not until later realizing that this is a contradiction in terms and I would have to find a communion of believers if I was to be serious about my faith. Now, what did Bella find in the courage to be that changed his life? In the introduction to Beyond Belief, he gives us some strong clues. In remembering Bob as a person of faith, in a lived community of his church, these passages are important touchstones, not just for Bella, but for all of us, if we are to continue to engage him. First, he acknowledges his need for religious wholeness, which he said filled him since he was an adolescent. Second, he indicates the power of Tillich's closing lines in The Courage to Be, which corresponded to his mood of despair at the time. Quoting Tillich, the courage to take the anxiety of meaninglessness upon oneself is the boundary line up to which the courage to be can go. Beyond it is mere non-being. Within it all, within it all forms of courage are reestablished in the power of the God above the God of theism. The courage to be is rooted in the God who appears when God has disappeared in the anxiety of doubt. Yet in more revealing passages in the introduction, Bella said again with the help of Tillich that he understood existentially the Christian doctrine of sin. Bella says, I saw the worst only a hair's breadth away from the best in any man in any society. I saw that unbroken commitment to any individual or any group is bound to be demonic. Nothing human can bear that weight. I learned to see darkness within, that we are all assassins in our heart. 
If I'm not a murderer, it's because of the grace I have received through the love and support of others, not through the lack of murderous impulses within me. Feeling all this, I could no longer hate, or rather justify hatred, since I participate in the guilt of every man, and there is no man I can reject or declare unforgivable. This is what the New Testament taught me in those months, contradictory culture of Christianity and Marxism, both of which made idolatrous commitment to particular structures and persons and foster a consequent self-righteousness. He finishes with, it was then I saw that identification with the body of Christ meant identification with all men without exception. It's not difficult to see this understanding permeate Bob's work and particularly his life. These passages reveal the openness with which he went beyond mere respect to identify with a wide range of religious expression by rejecting reductionist approaches to the study of religious life. And it is certainly what sustained him in personal tragedies. Is it possible to understand Bella's social science without understanding where it comes from, from the depth of his humanity, his religious self? Yet I think for this assembled body, it is what Bella says about what it means to be a teacher of religion that is especially important to remember. In more from his C.S. Lewis talk, he said, I realized I had to teach religion before I could teach about it. I never gave up my analytical sociological perspective, but I had to give my students something real upon which to direct that perspective. If we had more time, we could again trace much of Tillich, but I really suspect that it was Bob's experience in the classroom with his students that solidified his notion that you had to teach religion, not just about religion. Again, in his own words, though Christianity was of growing importance in my life, and I had great sympathy with several of the other great religions, my teaching about religion was, I would put it now, quite disembodied. In my teaching, I treated religion at arm's length, as specimens to be analyzed, I had some disturbing experience in those early days of teaching. On more than one occasion, I had students come to my office and tell me they, my course had caused them to lose their faith. I met the, this with these confessions with consternation. I had not set out to convert my students to secular humanism, but it seems that's what I did. I eventually came to realize you can't teach religion without taking a religious stance. If you think you're avoiding one, you just end up taking an anti-religious stance. Taking Bella's comments to heart, I wonder whether we as religious scholars, with often a disembodied approach to teaching religion, fail our students on the subject we are most concerned about. This could not be said of Bella. Let me end with the words from one of his sermons he delivered at his home church in Berkeley, where his religion was no longer a private Christianity. It was a sermon preached on All Souls Day, Harvey mentioned it, fitting for us today as a day of remembrance for the dead. After remembers our deep history from the Big Bang forward, remembering parents and friends, he concludes with, in this task, we must learn not to be afraid of death, even our own, for death is part of life, and living or dead, we are part of one living community. 
Finally, he says, I want to remind you that it is in the Eucharist that it all comes together. With all the company of heaven, the communion of saints, all souls, all enfolded in one time, time out of time, all equally present, past, future, and to come, the eternal is now. Let us remember Bob as one of those souls as we ponder what he continues to mean for our future individually and as a community of memory, being faithful to one of our most faithful. Thank you, Harold. Phil Gorski from Yale. Phil Gorski. There is a famous passage in the Nicomachean Ethics that I think about more and more as I grow older. It grows roughly, it goes roughly like this. You don't know whether a person has lived happily until after they die. I remember being very puzzled by it at first when I was younger. It runs very much against the grain of the moral imaginary of the present age because we tend to think of happiness as a succession of positive emotional states. For Aristotle, however, the human person was part matter and part form, and the human soul was the union of that matter and form, and the form of the soul was the shape of a life. And the shape of a life is the story of that life, and this is why we cannot know whether our story was a happy one until the last chapter is written. Nor is it even for us to decide whether it was a happy one. It is for those who live on to decide, and so here we are. I, for one, think that Bob's life was a happy one in this sense. To be sure, it was not free of great tragedy and deep suffering. But then no truly happy life ever is. To have lived happily, to have lived well, is not to have evaded pain or discomfort, but to have responded skillfully to the demands of the day as they present themselves to us in our daily lives. By this, I mean both the demands of the everyday but also of the historical moment. To respond skillfully is not to respond mechanically, following some unbending rule, but to supply react to the competing imperatives of those moments. It always seemed to me that Bob did this with great virtuosity in both his public and private lives. But the truth is that I knew him more as a scholar than as a person, not nearly as well as many of the people on the die today. And so, let me dwell for a few moments on his intellectual excellences. One of the obvious challenges of the academic life in our age is to find some balance between narrow specialization and undisciplined dilettantism. Though between the two, it is surely the former over-specialization that is the greater danger right now. Somehow, Bob managed to roam widely over many eras and cultures but at the same time to burrow deeply down in each place he visited. And this in a journey that took him from early modern Japan to contemporary America to ancient China, to name just a few of the stops on his lifelong intellectual itinerary. All the while, of course, showing the proper respect to the deep learning of the scholarly guides who helped him along his way. Not easily done. Another challenge of the intellectual life is balancing scholarly seriousness and public engagement. One of the reasons why a young person chooses to become a social scientist in the first place, 
one of the honorable reasons in any event, is that they believe that the knowledge they gather might somehow contribute to the human good. But the only way to do this, short of becoming a technocrat or a conciliary, is to reach a broader public. And this too is easier said than done. It is, amongst other things, a problem of translation, of translation from the language of the specialist to that of the citizen. And this too Bob excelled. Consider habits of the heart. It's a very easy read, deceptively easy, so easy to read one imagines it must also have been easy to write. But that is surely not the case, and those who succeed at it should expect resentment rather than admiration from their peers. A third great challenge for American intellectuals is to steer some sort of middle course between cosmopolitanism and patriotism, between one's loyalties to the whole of an abstract humanity and that particular piece of it we just so happen to have been born into. For most American intellectuals today, the cosmopolitan pole exerts by far the most more powerful attraction, while the patriotic can simply repel, colonized as it is right now by boastful and raucous voices. Surely no one would, could, could or would dispute Bob's cosmopolitan credentials. In his salad days at a time of domestic complacency that is almost unimaginable today, Bob set off for Japan. Not France or England or Germany, Japan. But I would like to insist that at the same time, Bob was also an American patriot of a very heterodox sort. Not of the flag-pin-wearing, self-totemizing or invasion-supporting, nation-worshipping kind, to be sure. Rather, a patriot of the better angels and higher ideals kind for whom the American project was an unfinished and democratic one, rather than an, an imperial fait accompli. No one who has read the public sociology of his middle years, the work that begins with the civil religion essay and winds up with the good society, can possibly doubt this. The fourth and final challenge I wish to highlight here is that of balancing faith and reason. For many modern intellectuals, even for the great Max Weber, this has appeared as a choice, not a balance. In a youthful letter to his wife, Weber pledged himself to a life without illusion. For Weber, this of course meant a life without religion, though he was wise enough to realize that this too was a sort of faith. But Bob simply refused this dichotomy. In an age when the relationship of religion and rationality is reduced to pop culture slogans and dueling bumper stickers, in which some fish sport, uh, and some fish sport, fish sport crosses and others sprout legs, Bob sought to weave together the religious narratives of the axial age with the scientific stories of cosmic and organic evolution. Whether many of our generation will achieve such excellences in our own lives or whether we will become specialists without spirit and cosmopolitans without commitment, I'm not certain. And Bob, as Bob would say, I'm hopeful but not optimistic. Thank you. Thank you so, Anna Sun from the uh, uh, Kenyon College. Thank you, Mark, for inviting me. It is an honor to be here to share some memories of my mentor, Robert Bella, and thank you all for being here to honor his memory. 
I came from Washington D.C. this afternoon after a two-day meeting with my collaborators in an ethnographic project on the meaning of a good life in contemporary urban China. We call the project simply Habits of the Heart in China. And Professor um, um, Richard Madison from the original Habits Group is a leader in the project. I woke at five this morning thinking about the progress we have made. And I thought, how I wish I could send Bob an email to tell him about our plans and to share our excitement. And I knew he would have written back right away in a few hours, the way he was with students and friends. I first met Bob when I was a senior in college. With Professor Sweetler's help, I got into one of the last classes, if not the very last, he taught before his retirement. It was a sociology of religion seminar, a graduate seminar he co-taught with Anne. I read Weber's Religion of China for the first time with these two extraordinary scholars and teachers. And I disagreed rather passionately with a few of Weber's arguments about Confucianism. It is not an overstatement to say that that particular seminar sealed my intellectual destiny. I went on to receive my PhD in sociology from Princeton, and my first book has just been published this year entitled Confucianism as a World Religion, Contested Histories and Contemporary Realities. Over the years, uh, my husband, uh, Yang Xiao, a philosopher who shares Bob's love of Confucius and Mencius, and I would visit Bob and his wife, Melanie, very beautiful indeed, as Anne said, whenever we were in Berkeley. It was during these lunches and dinners that we got to know Bob and Melanie as friends, talking about religion, politics, music, and family, all lifelong passions for Bob. Um, by the way, Bob's passionate involvement with the first election campaign of, Baba, of Obama was such that on the election night when Obama went Ohio, where I teach, my first thought was, this would make Bob so happy. It was thrilling to watch Bob at work. During the 13 years he worked on religion in human evolution, published two years ago, I had the privilege of reading many of the original draft chapters of the book. His tremendous depth of learning and passionate commitment to mastery is something one can never hope to emulate. But above all, it was the joy he took in work that was the most exhilarating to behold. As he said on a panel on his book at the AAR meeting in 2011, he said the following about work and play. All of my categories overlap. Religion and the world of daily life overlap and certainly work and play overlap. I will tell you something. In the 13 years I was quote and quote working on this book, I was playing. And if you watch the YouTube 
um, clip of this panel session, you can see a big smile on Bob's face at this point. Confucius has said, to be fond of something is better than merely to know it. To find joy in it is better than merely to be fond of it. It is not an overstatement to say that, in fact, the relationship between Bob and life itself was one of joy. He was joyful in his thinking, joyful in his many friendships, joyful in family love, and joyful, I think, even in his relation to death. It is not a mindless cheerfulness, but a love of life earned through tragedies and struggles, commitments and participations. I shall end my remarks with some reflection on participation, which I think is another essential thing I've learned from Bob, something Harvey mentioned earlier, in fact. In a response to critics of religion in human evolution, Bob said, and I quote, to the extent that I will accept the honor of being called a theologian, it is along the lines of what Tillich himself described in a talk. He said that all academic study in the humanities, and especially in religion, must combine detachment or distance with participation. Here's a quote from Tillich. All detached knowledge remains hypothesis. It is preliminary. But participation brings the subject into us or us into it. Bob went on to say, in the case studies of my book, I sought the passion of participation that Tillich rightly organized, recognized must complement detached analysis. It is this passion of participation that sets um, Bob apart, among many other things. As he acknowledged fully, he was deeply committed to and affected by his participation in social Christianity, as well as his life as a sacramental Anglo-Catholic Christian. He participated also through his joyful and passionate intellectual engagement with the Hebrew prophets, Plato, Aristotle, the Buddha of the Pali Canon, Confucius, Mencius, Native American religion, and many other sources of inspiration. Bob was always the most fully present person in intellectual conversations, and this is something Anne captured so well in her remarks. I will never forget that when Bob went to Hong Kong for the first time in 2011, during a conference on civil religion and China, his powerful participation was so inspiring that it elevated not only the level of discourse, but also elicited deep, deeply involved participation from younger generation of scholars. We were inspired not only by his mind, but also by his passion. C.S. Lewis once said, Joy is a serious business of heaven. 
It is Bob's wholehearted love that I miss the most since his passing. I hope, I think, both Bob and Melanie are now engaged in a serious business of joy after their passionate time on earth. Thank, thank you very much, Anna. You know, this has been such a wonderful mix of stories and ideas um, about the life and career of Bob Bella. A reminder, the old saying that, you know, ordinary people talk about people, and bright people talk about events, but brilliant people talk about ideas. Well, Bob would talk about all three mixed together as if they were the same thing. I used to get together with Bob almost every week when I was the coordinator of the Religious Studies program at Berkeley for about 15 years. And Bob was the chair of my advisory committee. Uh, so we often would meet for coffee after lunch, after uh, church. And we both went to the same Episcopal church nearby the campus, the University of California, Berkeley. And we would talk about all kinds of things. It would be, a lot of it would be about friends, about family. I remember once he got on a big rage. He just discovered the Bach cantatas. So being Bob, he had to have all of them, you know, in the original and, and with the finest uh, performers. Uh, and then he would just, within the same sentence sometimes, launch into, he'd be talking about the preacher, and he'd be talking about his family, and he'd be, then he'd talk about Wittgenstein, and he'd talk about Hegel, as if they were all in the same room, or they were just down the block, because I think in some ways they were for, for Bob. They were there in in a part of his community of discourse. At one point, we had put together a proposal for a new graduate program at Berkeley. After all these years, that didn't have a graduate program. We wanted to have a Department of Religious Studies at the University of California at Berkeley. And we took the proposal to the doctoral council where representatives from different departments were present, and they hashed it over. And at one point, a professor of philosophy got up and railed against the idea of the academic study of religion because, he says, there is nothing of Wissenschaftlich interest about religion that cannot be covered by other fields. Well, Bob was furious. And so as we walked out of the meeting, he muttered to me, he says, those damn enlightenment fundamentalists. <laughs> and then he put his finger in what he thought was really the problem, Kant. Kant was behind all this because he knew this guy. It was Kant's fault as if, you know, Kant was just down the street or he was just in the room as if he was a part of the discussion. Because, of course, in some ways he really was. In Bob's mind, he wasn't just down the street. He was really there. So now Bob joins that august body of people who we evoke uh, as if he was still in the room because, of course, he is. Well, thank you all for so much. Now, we have st still a few minutes, and we have two open microphones. And I'd like anybody who would like to add a comment, either about the impact of Bella's ideas on their life or uh, a personal uh, story. But be very brief. I'm going to have to cut you off if it's more than a couple minutes. And with the bright lights, I can't see you. So even though you think you know who uh, I should know who you are, uh, tell everybody who you are. Uh, and get past the glare, and then be very brief. Yes, please. I'm Brian Palmer from Uppsala University in Sweden. Harvey Cox mentioned Bella's left-of-center politics. Um, when in his life was he most a politically engaged person or a political activist? 
which, which projects, uh, and did he ever pay a price for his engagement? <laughs> well, we could start from these days of Harvard where he certainly paid a price in his, uh, his flirtation with Marxism. He actually was a member of the Communist Party. Uh, and uh, there was very clearly that he was going to teach his, uh, keep his teaching position. He, he was going to have to, as Bella said, name names. And the dean at the time, who was, of course, McGeorge Bundy, <laughs> made it clear. And I, by the way, I, I mentioned that in the, in, in the obituary, uh, the memorial for Bob and the JR. And then, and then I was corrected that, that uh, McBundy claimed, and there was a very famous discussion between uh, Bundy and, and Bella later on, uh, in, I think, in the uh, New York Review of Books, uh, letters back and forth, where Bundy basically apologized and said that it wasn't his idea to do this. He was just following out the dictates of the Harvard administration. Uh, so it was, he, he thought was, Bob was a great scholar, and he was really a very supportive of him. But that's, of course, the moment where Bob said, to heck with this. He went off to McGill, uh, studied Arabic, uh, and then came back about the time McGeorge Bundy was leaving to work in the, in the Kennedy administration. Um, but that, that was the beginning of one of many times where Bob's political connections had an effect on his uh, academic life. Anybody want to add to that? Um, Harvey or David? Or? No, I think that's the answer. Yeah. That's the one I know. I think that's the answer, and I think that was a, a wound that mm -hmm. he carried for a very long time in his life and was always pretty careful about just how deeply he would uh, engage in the activist side. He had this activist side, but I, th I think that was a, uh, it was a hard blow to Bob. I, w I wonder if the Princeton flap had anything to do with yeah. Bob's politics, or whether it was more about his style of sociology and the, that, and the fact that he studied religion, which was regarded as a disreputable field by the people at the Princeton Institute of Advanced Study. That that Clifford Gertz had wanted him to be a colleague there, but there was some. Uh, protest within the Princeton ranks, and uh, that became a very public uh, and very unpleasant uh, public feud for a while. I don't know whether any of you have some insights on the Princeton episode in Bob's rancorous life. Well, I, I think one thing is clear in comparison with Cliff. Religion was okay with at least uh, mm -hmm. many, if not uh, mm -hmm. all the folks at the Institute, just as long as you didn't bring it home. And just as long as you didn't leap from thick description to pointed moral judgment, uh, that came close. Mm -hmm. And uh, uh, the fact is that, I mean, back uh, to Harvard for a moment, um, Falcon Parsons uh, personally uh, put his uh, good name and uh, his weight behind holding on to Bob's fellowship, which Mac was going to turn, uh, take away from him. Mm -hmm. And so this was not a kind of matter of mutual misunderstanding. And of course, others came in and uh, New York Review of Books uh, uh, articles eventually in letters and said, look, Bob wasn't the only one. But in some ways, he was right up front. And uh, you know, frankly, without kind of doubling back too far from this, uh, the fact that, as David said, uh, you know, the argument's still ongoing. Bob is quite willing to take people on. Mm -hmm. And uh, no accident that Wilfred Cantwell-Smith was uh, tag-teaming you with Bob. Uh, where was Talcott? I think, actually, he could have been in your corner. The fact <laughs> yeah. that Harvey's secular city uh, translates uh, at least some of Talcott 
into beautiful, eloquent English um, and makes the kind of argument, an anti-secularization argument of Talcott's that both kind of teaching and arguing, hmm. contesting. And this sense, like uh, Talcott had in his office, this big blow-up in the middle of Max Weber's face. So you saw it every time you went into his office and went, uh-oh, uh, looking brooding and difficult, profound, but troubled, uh, too. Uh, Bob's mm, conviction about what he was doing and who he was is tied up with that community of discourse, of participation, of argument, of influence that, uh, you know, and of these old to Weber and Durkheim every day. And of these old battles, I remember once in the encounter between you and Bob on the Comparative Ethics Project, David, when, again, I was convinced when he was, when we was fighting with you, he was fighting with Kant. It, it was, you were just a stand-in for Kant. You just happened, happened to be there. It was really Kant that he was fighting with. <laughs> yeah. Yes, another comment. Yes, just a brief comment. Hello, um, my name is Reverend Joy Orr, and I'm a, a recent graduate of Howard University School of Divinity. Um, I just wanted to say that um, it's, it's amazing to hear all of your stories and all of your experiences about how Dr. Bella has, um, you know, impacted your life, and it's, he definitely impacted mine to the point where I'm, I have been encouraged by when I discovered his essay on civil religion, I said, yes, I am going to be a scholar. <laughs> um, oh, wonderful. I was actually researching uh, re Marcus Garvey's United Negro Improvement Association, the religious culture thereof, and that's when I somehow, um, through a number of footnotes, discovered uh, the essay of civil religion and was just so moved and motivated to dig deeper and to become a student in sociology of religion. And so I just want to say thank you for putting this um, discussion on um, because I personally have been moved and um, inspired. Well, thank thank you. you very much. Thank you. Please. I'm Joseph Prabhu. I'm a friend of Bob's from quite some time. Uh, I understand. Joseph, I apologize. I couldn't see you because of the glare. So. Yeah, okay. No problem. Uh, I understand there's a biography of Bob coming out, and uh, I was wondering if you could tell us about that and how Bob chose this particular Italian biographer and what the, the history of that project is. I think Matteo chose him, didn't, didn't he? And that's the no, way Matteo it worked. chose him. Yeah, yeah. But then a, a, how, a, a, how did Bob yeah. come to agree with the choice of Matteo rather than anyone else. Well, I, and do you know the story? No, I don't, Steve. Mm -hmm. do you, I mean, Matteo showed up, I think, and was writing about Bob, and then Bob agreed to be interviewed, and then I think they had a genuine intellectual friendship, and Matteo, but that's all I, it, Bill Sullivan probably knows a little bit more. The, I guess the other thing I'll say is that um, Matteo, wasn't just a biographer, he really became a, a sort of, um, uh, I don't know, if, uh, I don't even have the right word because he didn't live in Berkeley, so he wasn't around all the time, but I think Bob felt himself in very deep intellectual communication with Matteo and felt that Matteo truly understood him and his work and his thought. And the other thing is, of course, it is flattering to have this very bright Italian academic devoting his life to understanding your work, and I think Bob also was, I mean, I, I don't know that anyone besides Matteo wanted to do an ambitious full-scale biography of Bob and had the intellectual wherewithal to do it. I guess that just one other thing, no one, so there was another memorial for Bob and more people talked about 
um, how compassionate Bob was personally and how kind he was to the vulnerable undergraduate, to the frightened graduate student, to the person in turmoil or crisis, several students who actually ended up never getting PhDs, left graduate school for various reasons, and Bob remained an incredibly devoted friend to a, a huge array of people, his kindness, really. So he had this kind of temper. He could be temperamental if you disagreed with him. You, not on most things, but a few big things. Anyway, so I think also he developed a kind of father, I guess I would say father mm -hmm. relationship to Matteo as well. But that's as much as I understand. And this, the name is Matteo Bortolini, and when Matteo finishes, the biography isn't done yet, but when it's published, uh, it should be wonderful, I think. Yeah, he really warmed to Matteo. The first time I met Matteo was with Bob, and Bob introduced him as my biographer. <laughs> Oswell. Uh, Matteo is very warm and engaging and persuasive. Also, as Anne indicated, he did a ton of work before he even came to Bob. Yeah. He got into archives at Harvard and elsewhere, Talcott's papers. Mm -hmm. He dug out this 1965 first version of civil religion, mm -hmm. uh, which is barely cited. Uh, Talcott cites it once in the 1968 encyclopedia article on Christianity mm -hmm. um, at the end. And Matteo has that, and uh, in fact uh, has elaborated a, a set of articles in uh, the online Sociologica from Bologna, where he teaches uh, about that piece and uh, how it came to be. He brought it to light on his own. So well, Matteo was the one who corrected me about McGeorge Bundy, for example. Yeah. And, uh, so when the, this biography comes out, it will really be, I think, a significant study, and one that's fully with Bob's blessings and participation. Yes. Is there anybody? Yes, yes. please. Um, thank you. Um, I just wanted to thank you so much for the, the panel and the Please tell us your name and your, where you're from. Uh, Thomas Abraham. I'm a, a student at a Lutheran Theological Saber, uh, Seminary at Gettysburg. Uh, I think I'm a testament to how quickly time moves because I would not be privy to Robert Bella's axial age or religion in human evolution had not be for a course I took with Philip Gorski uh, at Yale University. And uh, after reading Religion and Human Evolution and this great magnum opus that is Robert Bellas, I'm just curious as to what you think, how Religion and Human Evolution influences each of your scholarships, uh, but also uh, the tragedy of perhaps not having the follow-up volume uh, on, the, on the Reformation that he, he was working on how that negatively affects your scholarship. Uh, and yeah, again, thank you so much. Thank you. I, well, I think we have a good sense of what that volume was going to be. I mean, he's uh, talked uh, a lot about the shape of it. And of course, just as the Axel Age was kind of the focus of religion and human evolution, uh, the Enlightenment and the whole uh, emergence of uh, in individualism and uh, democracy uh, around the world was occurring uh, at roughly the, the same time in Egypt. You have the, uh, in India, for example, you have the rise of a whole new kind of religiosity around saints and, and a kind of democratization of the tradition. So it's that same remarkable conjunction of, of styles of religiosity appearing at the same time that led him to the observation that there was something in the evolution of the human capacity uh, for uh, 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 development of culture that 
that, that caused, that was behind these simultaneous uh, transformations of religion. And I think that was the argument that was going to be making in, in uh, uh, the last book, ending, of course, with the perilous state w that we exist in terms of our environment and our capacity to destroy our own civilization, uh, that really uh, uh, a moral concern that, that, that disturbed me really quite deeply. Uh, Harvey, did you want to add to that? Well, I didn't want to add to it. I just responded to uh, mm -hmm. the question of how much and in what way uh, religion and human evolution has influenced my thinking, my scholarship. In all candor, it's pretty discouraging to read that book. It's pretty discouraging because it's such an enormously accomplished and, and, and displays such <laughs> phenomenal grasp and erudition and breadth that one puts it down and says, wait a minute, I mean, I, I can't do anything like this. Uh, every my, I'm, a, I'm an amateur saxophone player, and I, I feel the same way after listening to John Coltrane. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, but he loved working on this book. This book was so much fun for him. The 10 years or so that he spent writing it, I would run into him again after church in, in Berkeley, and, and he would say, oh, I've just discovered, going to the Vedas, he says, you India scholars, you've been sitting on this wonderful material. I had no idea. And then he started rattling off scholars that I had never heard of that he had just discovered himself. And, of course, to read that book is to read the kind of the breathlessness of somebody who has just discovered this wonderful stuff and wants to tell you all about it. And he writes that way, which is, makes it fun to read. Uh, also a little annoying sometimes because he goes on at length about things you don't really want to know about that much. But that's since that's since Harvey has invoked John Coltrane, uh, you know, part of what you've heard from us um, uh, is you got to live it if you want to to come out your horn. And that's John Coltrane. That's Bob, and you ought to hear Harvey play Embraceable You. Uh, I think it actually influenced John Coltrane in his early days, right, Harvey? <laughs> yes, please. Good evening. My name is Ann Duncan. I teach at Goucher College. Um, and I want to thank you all for your lovely tributes. Um, I wanted to build on an earlier comment about the Daedalus article, um, both for its personal impact but also pedagogical impact um, in my career. It's a, an essay that I came across first as an undergraduate, and it completely blew open for me a whole new way of looking at not only religion and politics, but some of the more um, uh, kind of less easy to see ways in which religion figures into our society. Um, and since then, I've read a lot of his other work, um, and I've also become aware of some of his concerns about people focusing so much on that essay and some of his concerns about the deficiencies it might have had. But as I've been teaching that essay in intro classes, in particular on religion and society, I've found that those deficiencies are some of the most effective parts of that essay and that they spark such amazing conversations with my students about what diversity does to this idea, um, how things are different now. And I think it's been very revelatory for any of the students that encounter it, um, and I think fundamentally change the way that they look at the world, not necessarily to see it the way he articulated in 67, um, but to know what questions to ask and what to look for, um, and I'm very grateful for that. You just gave me a great idea of how to end our session together. I would like every one of you on the panel just to say a word about what you think was the most important work of Bob's in your own in your own life, in your own work, in your own experience, what had the biggest impact on you and your work? And 
Anna, can we start with you and come down this direction rather than I going the other way? I have an easy one, religion and human evolution, especially this chapter on China. <laughs> Philip? I guess for me it was a civil religion essay, though not immediately after I read it 25 years later. Mm -hmm. I think it was the essays in Beyond Belief that really impacted me. Hmm. For me, the essays in Beyond Belief, especially the last one about this binocular vision of, 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 of human life. Amen. Religious Evolution and the Symbolic Realism essay. I read them when I was a uh, first year in graduate student. And uh, I thought, aha, uh -huh, Max Faber and the rest of the story. Yeah, and for me, it was definitely the Religious Evolution essay, which I read probably right around the time it was published. And, um, and actually, one of the frustrations I had with when I was reading the chapters of Religion and Human Evolution, I kept looking for that structure, not the evolution part, but the idea of the differentiation of a symbolic realm that over millennia gave human beings increasing leverage over uh, political and social life. That is, if you want the paradigm from that essay, it's that eventually you get a differentiated symbol system in terms of which earthly power can be judged. That really is what interested him. And I think that to some degree he genuinely changed his mind about that way of thinking because he came to see that the emotional and moral power to transform the world really depended not on transcending, you know, sort of a transcendent Protestant God who would give you leverage to judge the world, but on being able to capture those primordial, uh, the nothing is ever lost, the, the emotion, the ritual, the, the inarticulable symbols that actually give religion its power. And so I think he... He evolved beyond where I was uh, stuck. I'll say that. For me, it was probably the broken covenant and to some degree civil religion, though that was another area that Bob and I argued over pretty sharply. <laughs> uh, I can't go into all the areas. <laughs> uh, but what interested me about civil religion is that he gave the idea up. He once told me that, that he had given it up and turned his back on it and didn't want to hear about the yeah. discussions anymore. And didn't use it frankly, I would like to, I, I never got the full story as to why Bob gave up on that as completely as he did. And if we had time, I'd love to hear from other panel members as to his thinking about about that subject. Uh, if I may just add a footnote, what you just said, he actually became interested in the idea again himself in 2011 seeing how it's being oh, used. Yes, how it's used. It, it was mostly he thought it was misunderstood. He just thought he didn't want to be associated context. with a phrase that was used in his, his mind wrongly. Yeah, mm -hmm. this could be an edited volume on civil religion in China coming from the, out of that conference and commented on every single paper. He was very excited. Mm -hmm. This is for the next session, but in fact, <laughs> religion and legitimation of the American Republic, the multivocal argument that carries over into the second chapter of Habits uh -huh. um, and the kind of resistance to culture wars. Once upon a Durkheimian time, there's a unitary fixed foundation. Now it's fragmented. Mm -hmm. That's wrong, and it's against that misconstrual uh, that he finally said, okay, okay. But the kind of argument mm -hmm. of public life and multiple voices and traditions as well as carriers and vocalists, mm -hmm. that, that continues. Yeah. Harvey? 
Well, yeah, the essay uh, mentioned earlier on symbolic realism mm -hmm. uh, uh, really stuck with me in part because it cohered so well with the theology of Paul Tillich. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you all to notice how frequently the name of Paul Tillich was invoked today, oh, yes. right. uh, on this panel. It's no accident. I mean, yeah. uh, he was, uh, Bob Bell was really a, a Tillichian theologically. Mm -hmm. I think it really helped him make his move mm -hmm. into, uh, back into Christianity. But let me add, after my discouraging words about religion and human evolution, I have a feeling that in the future that is going to be the most influential book if I can overcome my bewilderment and uh, discouragement in, in, in trying to encompass the whole thing. Well, I, I think for me, I think uh, uh, religion and human evolution is, uh, is it will be his most enduring contribution, in part because the conceptualization of religion as alternative reality, and, uh, which comes relatively early on, and I think it hasn't been as discussed as much as it, it will be. And then there's an unpublished uh, article and uh, a lecture he gave last year at Santa Barbara on religion and global civil society that has been uh, very important in my own thinking about that and will someday, I'm sure, see the light of day. Well, Mark, this has been Mark, a remarkable gathering. Mark. Thank you all so much. Thank you.